Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and I'm joined again this week by my co-host, Brianne. Brianne, how's it going? Hey, Neil. It's going great. Really happy to be here with you and excited to get started. Well, we've got a great guest joining us this week, Yuri Horwitz, the founder, chief executive officer, and chairman of the board of Solar Systems, a real leader in the solar industry. Yuri, thank you for taking some time to join the Plugged In Podcast. Thanks, Neil. It's, it's good to be here and uh, always enjoy catching up with you. Well, just to get us started for some of our listeners, I think it'd be helpful before we dive into the substance of what we want to discuss today, kind of give a little bit of background on yourself, on the company, about what sort of led you to founding it, and a little bit about your growth story. Thanks, Neil. Sure, happy to. We're DC-based, not far from you, I don't think. Been here for a long time. Actually started the company in 2008. Came to solar, actually, as a lawyer briefly, doing uh, large-scale renewable energy law, doing, doing big contracts for big companies, and saw an opportunity, actually, when I was doing that to move into the space and saw a lot of opportunity to do good work in the space. So my business partner, George, and I started the company and I went to college down in William Mary, ran track together and have been buddies ever since. And the company is about 130 people. As I said, we're located in DC. We focus really on larger customers and municipalities and enabling them to sustain and, and achieve their renewable energy goals and their sustainability goals. And so we do that in a, a few different ways. We're, we're a different company and that we do that not only by developing large scale and DG assets, which means you know big solar projects in fields and also solar projects on rooftops. But we also work with them to invest in the space and at times to procure what are called renewable energy certificates if they're not able to actually buy directly from a project. So we have a, a pretty multifaceted approach to customers and across all of those different strategies, we focus a lot on ensuring that local communities in and around the projects we work on benefit from the projects themselves. And that's a, a very uh, unique approach in our industry, one that has a lot of resonance with our customers and our partners, because it's a really important part of the future of renewables. You founded the company Soul Systems in 2008. I'd be really curious to know, just in your own words, how the energy landscape has changed and the renewable energy landscape, I guess, has changed since then. Dramatically, in one word, I'd say. So when we started, actually 2008, 2009, a solar module was priced at something like $2 to $3 for a solar module. And that, that's priced per watt, which is you know a unit of output for, for the project or for, for a module. That same module today would cost anywhere between 30 and 50 cents, depending on the module type, et cetera. So just, just in terms of the economics of solar, it's really grown from an industry that was mostly focused in Europe and Germany at the time to, to one that's actually mostly focused in the United States and China, Europe, India. But the, the scale of that business has changed so much and the economics have changed so dramatically that at this point, solar is now one of the more affordable and certainly one of the more stable sources of electricity generation in the world. And that's a huge change for us. The other change I'd say is a lot of the folks that got into the industry early on. And I was one of them got in because of their concerns, their interest in environmental issues and sustainability. Now, most of the largest banks, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance companies, all are investing in or are considering investing in renewable energy. And so that the scale of the business from a financial perspective has changed dramatically as well. 
Yeah, I've definitely seen that. The business case for clean energy has really changed dramatically. I think at their onset, the the growth in solar in particular was really driven by subsidies and, you know, kind of various different state and federal policies. But today, solar can compete and consumers are demanding it, which has got to be pretty exciting. Yeah. And not only that, Neil, what's cool about solar is if you think about it, the vast majority of the jobs are here, right? So we're buying... We're buying energy that's produced on our rooftops or in a field nearby. And that energy is being produced from a project that's being built by Americans in communities that need the economic development. And so I get really excited about that, too, as we think about the future of this industry um, and what it can do, not only for greening up our energy supply, which I think everyone wants, but also in terms of the economic opportunity of solar and its ability to increase jobs locally, produce jobs locally, and contribute to economic development in communities in and around the projects. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, you know, certainly we've seen a huge amount of solar growth. I think there was a recent Woods McKenzie forecast that expects 40% growth for the industry by 2027. So not only is this a major area of growth, but it's happening really, really fast. So what do you see as some of the big hurdles, you know, in the in the near and long term for the industry? I think one of them was illustrated most recently in California when they had the risk of outages during the heat wave this summer because they have a ton of solar. The problem, I guess, in, in their instance, is just keeping it online when the sun goes down and in those evening hours. So how are you guys working to kind of address the big demand growth that's happening really fast and also ensure reliability? No, that's a great question. The way I think about energy resources, they all have their upsides and downsides. And the, the concern you just mentioned, which is about the availability of the energy resource itself, like when, when can you actually utilize solar? energy. No doubt that uh, it's a huge, I would say, both an issue and an opportunity for our industry. Anyone who needs to be serious about having a conversation around scaling renewables, you know, has to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to produce solar energy in the middle of the night. And so what do you do in the night? Well, the answer is you've got to store that energy, which is a massive problem we've got to solve, but it's also a massive opportunity. And we're doing that. I mean, the storage industry is going to scale at, you know, 10x what it is now in the next five or 10 years, just the same way that solar did. So I think just to hit that one in the head, yes, absolutely. We can't talk about renewable energy without talking about storage. When I see scaling our industry on the ground, I, I think, Yes, and we also have to focus on a few other things. One is supply chain, which is twofold. In the short term, ensuring that we have adequate access to modules and to racking and other equipment from global supply chains as they exist today. And the second, and this is a longer term thing, which is five, 10 years down the road, ensuring that there are opportunities and incentives for U.S. domestic manufacturing. That way, we're not only driving jobs when we build solar, we're actually driving jobs through the manufacturing of equipment, which we're doing now. Um, and I think it's a complement of having strong U.S. jobs and also having a strong, resilient global supply chain that is more diversified than it is today. And that's happened naturally. The Biden administration is very focused on that and others are, are focused on that as well. So supply chain and then just a couple others I think that we're really focused on are interconnection and transmission. So transmission and distribution upgrades, the actual infrastructure we built itself that runs our electricity grid, it's like 50 years old, right? So we've all got to invest in upgrading that, building new, more resilient transmission and distribution so we can resolve some of the issues that you mentioned about in California. Some of those things are about the solar resource and some of them are just about 
the actual transmission and distribution itself. And then the, the last one I would just put, put out there is, as we scale as an industry, permitting and siting will be a really big issue. Like how do we build solar in such a way that it's respectful of the communities we're being built in? Because we're no longer sort of the small player on the block. We're, we're building uh, gigawatts, which are thousands of megawatts, you know, billions of dollars of solar every year. And in order to do that pro- appropriately and, and keep people on your side, you got to think about how you build the solar itself. Let's talk a little bit about what policymakers in Washington are doing on this front. When it comes to transmission and siting, my former colleagues at FERC are hard at work at this. And, you know, we've just seen legislation proposed by Senator Manchin that would kind of expedite permitting in some regard. So a lot of effort there. Obviously, the big big ticket item of the past few months has been the Inflation Reduction Act. And we've covered in past episodes what a big deal this was for solar in particular and the substantial investment and just the long-term clarity that was provided by that legislation. But just, you know, kind of curious to hear from you as you look to the future as to what changes in the solar industry do you forecast in a post-IRA world? Are we talking stronger supply chains? Will this lead to faster installations? Maybe less regulatory red tape? And as you look to the opportunities in the IRA, you know, what are some of the barriers or obstacles that you think might come up as well? Great question, Neil. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The IRA provides transparency for our industry to build. It provides, in the minds of investors, a level of stability. And in order to invest in assets, and this is a massive asset class, you need that stability. So we're going to drive billions of dollars in investment in the next 10 years in and around communities across America. And that's what's important about the IRA. And in terms of some of the things it's all for supply chain, I know that's something that you've been big on, bringing that domestic supply chain home and and, and creating the jobs here. Are you concerned at all about the cost implications, though, of, of moving away from, you know, kind of imported component parts and, and building them here? What's that going to mean in terms of increased prices for production here? It's the right question to ask for sure. And I'm sort of a mix of someone who believes in domestic supply chain and domestic jobs, but also believes in the resiliency of a global economy. So my answer here is maybe a little bit nuanced, which is never fun in today's world, never all that popular. But for one, I would say we should absolutely transition to a domestic supply chain. It's the rate at which we make that transition that's really critical. And I think we need to all be open in the next three to five years to what we should think of as a transition period where we move from securing the vast majority of our solar globally from China to securing it from a more robust array of different countries. And in the meantime, be investing in American jobs and supply chain here. So I'm an advocate of doing both. And and that's not to dodge the answer. I think that if we try to, to make that transition too quickly, we just won't build as much solar and we will push pricing way too high. And so I'm not a huge fan of the tariffs that are in place. I think we should work with the administration to reduce those tariffs and those restrictions with a clear path to the domestic build of supply chains in America over time. And that's the balance I would strike a five to six year transition period, but taking down some of the tariffs that are currently in place where we're all sort of on the same page. Yeah, I think that's a really, really smart assessment. I also really wanted to ask you about, you're a founding member of the group Renewables Forward, which as I understand it, the group really aimed at helping ensure this new kind of clean energy workforce that we're trying to build out as as a country and that we're moving towards is also more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Can you talk a little bit about that group and some of its short and long-term goals? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Renewables Forward is a group of founders, CEOs, and leaders within the renewable energy industry that are committed to a more diverse workforce and a more diverse industry. And the basic premise and founding principle of the organization is that we are on the precipice and really in the middle of actually building a new generation of energy resources across America. And repeatedly in the past, there have been these sort of economic revolutions of sorts, you know, every 20 to 50 years Silicon Valley might be the latest. And in those revolutions or those economic opportunities, oftentimes some of the peripheral communities and people aren't able to participate in the way they ought to. And that participation is critical to Americans' democracy and it's critical to our economy and it's what's right. It's good for our industry. It's just. And so that's what Renewable Sport is about, is enabling uh, many communities that have not been able to participate in our industry to participate more actively for all the good that we're all trying to achieve. This is an industry you know, focused on sustainability. We have a long ways to go and we're all focused, I think, on making progress on better diversity within our businesses individually and in the industry overall. So we're all focused on putting materials out there on how to create hiring plans that are, are more welcoming, more inclusive, on welcoming leaders within our organization of different backgrounds, and then helping folks like that also connect within our industry to the financial resources and the customers to enable them to succeed. So it's CEOs who are saying, listen, we're stepping up here. We want this place to be more diverse, and we're willing to share our time and our connectivity and our resources to ensure that happens. And so there's a, a great group of folks that I'm really proud to, to be you know, working with to do that, what we're focused on right now is mentoring young leaders within our industry or participants in the industry. We're focused on that training of HR executives and uh, other folks in hiring practices and trainings, and then connecting our industry third to organizations that are focused on job training and education to get those folks on a track so they can enter our industry. So it's sort of a timeline. You know, you start with education and job training, then you start with entering the industry itself, and then once you're in the industry mentoring those, those leaders and those participants so they can rise. When you're talking to your peers and, and you guys are having these conversations and you look to the future, is there generally optimism about the opportunities in the industry, about projected growth in the industry? What is the next phase? So IRA, you've just covered, big deal. What do you see coming on the horizon? Is it obviously, I'm biased, but you know, further implementation of FERC Order 841 to better deploy storage and maybe store solar plus storage, FERC Order 2222 on aggregated distributed energy resources. Are there other things that need to happen legislatively or um, from the regulatory side, from the trade side? What is your level of optimism? I'd say a couple things. I, I say this within the political context, but just in general, in the world these days, it's hard to say what's good and bad in the same sentence. People are either sort of binary. They're either everything is good or everything's bad. And I would say there's always going to be a mix right now or in a complex world. So generally speaking, I think everyone's optimistic, but we have to recognize there are some critical challenges for our industry and, and really a, a lot of other industries as well around supply chains, et cetera. So I believe deeply in this industry. I've been running the same company for 14, almost 15 years. I love it. I love our people and I love the industry. So I'm as optimistic and committed as anyone, but I, let's be honest about some of those challenges. And we talked about those earlier. The things that need to change, I'd say one is, or things that will change. One is, uh, and you, you, you pointed this one out, we've got to figure out how to better value storage and the overall value it delivers to the market. We've got to incentivize storage and the IRA does that, the development of storage, so that it is our industry and the energy, you know, the transmission distribution uh, infrastructure become more volatile with energy coming up and down to the 
the um, grid in a way that stabilizes production. So storage will be huge, enabling renewables, natural gas, and other power to be injected in the grid through more stability and actually having less reserve uh, online. In other words, storage enables you to have less power in the background just sort of running. Valuing energy in and near the load, which is where the power is used, also will be a big one, right? How do we ensure that we're citing renewables in and around or citing storage in and around where people actually use the electricity? And I think there will be some changes likely to renewable portfolio standards, but also through federal orders, FERC orders, et cetera. That will be a big one. And then finding other types of storage. Lithium ions really, you know, it's, it's a huge part of what we all do. It's in your cell phone. It's in our Tesla cars that you have one. But there's other ways to store power as well. So I see that changing. And I see that as a huge part of the opportunity ahead. And then finally, outside of solar, uh, offshore wind will be a big, big part of the future in a way that it isn't today. And so that will be really interesting because those are huge projects. They take a decade to develop. We'll see how that goes. How uh, essential do you think government policy will be to achieving some of the results you envision? Or will, will market forces alone get us to where you think we need to get? I think we need both, right? You don't build a great economy or a great country without some combination of private entrepreneurship and investment and, and, and the government directing that investment and helping to shape it. And that doesn't matter whether you're trying to build a great highway system or you're doing you know, the Rural Electrification Act of 1938 or your 2022 and your rebuilding distribution transmission, like you need to have folks that have the big picture that can help direct capital. And then you need to have folks like us that are, you know, down in the trenches building businesses and bringing in great people to build the future. So I think you need both. Well, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Plugged In Podcast. Listeners of the podcast know we like to always end with something light about our guests that give them a little insight. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you were a runner and that your partner was a runner. My first question is, who's faster? You and I have talked about this. My son's a runner, so I've become a running dad and have gotten super into cross country and track and the different events. Can you just talk a little bit about the influence that running has had in your life and how it kind of you know, sort of feeds your entrepreneurial spirit. Happy to. By the way, I'd love to talk to you and your son about running some other time. So first of all, I'll kick George's butt any day of the week. He was much faster than me when we ran track. I mean, much faster. He was sub-Olympic standard. He was a great runner. I ran the four and the eight. Um, and I was, you know, me- mediocre in college standards. But in terms of what running's provided me, I think it's two things. One is, you know, running a business, building a business is super stressful. We all deal with stuff in our lives and we all have to find out ways to to decompress and, and digest that stress. And running enables me to do that. Two, it gives me space to be human and to connect with the world itself. We're all running a million miles an hour these days. And so I can, you know, I can think, I got three boys at home. They keep me plenty busy. I love being a dad, but it's good to have a break every once in a while and a break from work. And so nothing better for me than getting up on a, a morning and the weekend and just going for a run and taking in the sunshine. So that's what it is today. And certainly it's given me a lot of focus and drive in which you need to build a business over 14 years. And one last follow-up question for me, since I'm also a runner, favorite place to run in DC. I'm a big fan of Beach Drive, especially on the weekends when it's closed down. I think there's no place more perfect. Yeah, for sure. Beach Drive's awesome. I like to go out to Fletcher's, which is on the, the towpath. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And actually, if you get just beyond Fletcher's, you get really close to the river itself and you, you're, you're running alongside the river. Oh, yeah. And there's that whole little kayak outlet. It's a great, great spot. Totally. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Really appreciate you joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you. Yep. Take care, guys.
Thanks so much again for listening to season three of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 